0: It's been a while since we've had a dramatic reading.
1: Shall we start with a dramatic reading? The climatic changes that may be produced by the increased CO2 content could be deleterious from the point of view of human beings.
0: This is the very first government report to mention climate change, submitted to President Lyndon Johnson in 1965.
1: The possibilities of deliberately bringing about countervailing climatic changes, therefore, need to be thoroughly explored.
0: The report lays out the sources of CO2, der, fossil fuels, the possible downsides of global warming, which you know already, and then without even momentary contemplation of ceasing emissions, pivots directly to this.
1: A change in the radiation balance in the opposite direction to that which might result from the increase of atmospheric CO2 could be produced by raising the albedo or reflectivity of the Earth. Such a change of albedo could be brought about, for example, by spreading very small, reflecting particles over large oceanic areas. Just to lay
0: it out, this report is saying global warming is a problem, yes, but to solve it, we could just spread something reflective over all of the oceans, like glitter, for example. Five million square miles of them. That's less than 4% of the surface area of the world's salt water. This might be the original sin of what's called geoengineering. Reading this makes it feel like we gave up on avoiding climate change before it had even really started. The report even estimates what it would cost. It says it would be pretty cheap.
1: Thus, a 1% change in reflectivity might be brought about for about $500 million a year. Considering the extraordinary economic and human importance of climate, costs of this magnitude do not seem excessive.
2: Why try to address a pollution problem with more pollution? I mean, just to be clear, that's what this is.
0: This is Gernot Wagner, a tricky name to pronounce for
2: Americans. Um, Gernot Wagner, a juggernaut without the jug.
0: Gernot is the co-founder of Harvard's solar geoengineering research program. Recently, I spent a couple of days interviewing people from that program, and this story is based largely on those interviews. Geoengineering, as in climate control. It's the idea that we should deliberately change the world's climate even more than we already have in order to counteract the effects of our carbon emissions. Not many folks are talking about pouring glitter into the oceans anymore. Instead, much of the focus is on the idea that we should deploy a massive fleet of planes all over the world which would spray tiny reflective particles very high up in the atmosphere.
2: Everything we seem to know about climate policy reverses with solar geoengineering. It is so cheap.
0: What Gernot is saying is that, crazy as that may seem, dimming the sun with tiny particles is much cheaper than the alternatives.
2: Literally just the engineering costs of dumping that stuff into the lower stratosphere costs sort of single-digit billions of dollars a year relative to sort of the trillions of dollars that unmitigated climate change costs and relative to the single digit trillions of dollars that it would cost to stop polluting altogether, cutting CO2 emissions to zero.
0: For more than 50 years now, this idea has tickled our imaginations. The allure is that it's a get out of jail free card The ultimate indulgence sold by the Church of Technology for our sins of inadvertent climate modification. Of course, a lot of you are probably already shouting, But what about the side effects? But frankly, before we can even get to the side effects, there's another big problem for this technology.
3: This is what I think is so interesting about geoengineering as an emerging, like, quote unquote, emerging technology, is that it's like not really emerging.
0: This is Jane Flagel, a professor at Arizona State University. She says that geoengineering is not really a thing. It's a hypothesis which has been tested almost entirely with nothing except for computer simulations, climate models, many of which simply turn down how much heat from the sun is coming in through the atmosphere just to see what happens. We're not sure if the engineering of getting the shiny particles up there would actually work. We have a pretty minimal understanding of what the unintended consequences might be. We're not even sure how long they would actually stay up there in the atmosphere or if they just clump together and fall to the Earth. It's all very, very hypothetical.
3: We have been stuck at this kind of research impasse for, I mean, I've been working on this for a decade and nothing, not much has changed.
0: Why the impasse? Why is a technology that was the knee-jerk response to climate change by government scientists more than 50 years ago still in its infancy? Well, because for decades this subject has been verboten. Sure, we were scared of possible side effects, but we were also scared of what it would mean if we talked about this too much. The existence of a get-out-of-jail-free card means you're not worried about going to jail. So maybe geoengineering should stay hypothetical.
3: This topic is insane, so giddy up.
0: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today we are talking about dealing with climate change by dimming the sun. An idea so fraught that it's been relegated to the scientific sidelines for 50 years. But as we hurdle towards a substantially warmer world, it's an idea that's gotten a lot of attention lately. And even if we might not want to think about it, it's an idea that we may be stuck with, like it or not. When we look at environmental problems, plastic in the ocean, overfishing, water quality, the first response is usually that we need to lower our impact on natural systems. But to embrace geoengineering is to embrace the opposite. That if we've got our thumb on one side of the scale, we should put the other thumb on the other side of the scale. It's a term that's been used to mean a lot of things. But today, we're mostly going to be talking about one particular technology, reflecting sunlight by spraying lots of tiny particles into the upper atmosphere to reflect back the sun's rays. It's called solar radiation management, SRM, a name that was actually invented to be as boring as possible so that NASA scientists would be allowed to attend conferences about it. And in reality, we're not actually talking about the nuts and bolts of that technology. You can find that on the internet. We're talking about the ideas that this technology forces us to grapple with. So, if this is an idea that's been around since the 60s or earlier, when did it suddenly get for real? Well, got a big boost when a high-profile essay came out back in 2006—
4: Huh. Uh, well, I heard about it because Steve Schneider, who is the author of Climatic Change, actually asked me to write one of the commentaries about it, but I was too busy and never got around to writing one, which I should have done.
0: This is David Keefe, who has been studying geoengineering since before climate change was an intractable political morass, since the late 80s. This essay was by an atmospheric physicist named Paul Crutzen, who had helped to draw attention to the growing hole in the ozone and who popularized the term Anthropocene the term that means humans have changed the world so much that we've now defined a new geologic era. In the essay, he said we should be seriously studying and considering geoengineering. So so then why do you think why do you think this one article by this one scientist did matter?
4: Uh I think well the
0: the obvious because because he's a Nobel Prize
4: winner he's very highly respected in the in the climate science community and one of the most discussed risks of one kind of solar geoengineering was damaging the ozone layer and Crutzen was most famous for understanding the chemistry of the ozone layer so the fact that. He, who nobody could accuse of not understanding risk to ozone layer, would say that we should look at this seriously, really dab down um, or made people rethink uh, uh, some of the objections they'd had.
0: Following the 2006 article, research spiked, up from just a few articles a year in the early aughts to more than 150 a year in 2014. And it was driven mostly by scientists.
5: I thought it might be economists or politicians or people jazzed about this as kind of a cheap and easy way out who were investigating it. But I found that 70% of the assertions made in the media were by scientists.
0: This is Holly Buck, a researcher at UCLA who got interested in all this geoengineering talk after hearing some conservative economists promoting it on a panel she went to.
5: The other thing I found was that only 3% of the assertions about geoengineering were made by women the other 97 percent it was men describing this men constructing what it means and explaining it to people
0: why might this be it's low-hanging fruit but also probably kind of dumb to suggest that there's something quintessentially masculine about this idea
5: yeah it seems like an easy answer and but i don't want to have some essentialist eco-feminist perspective that women are naturally more attuned to nature, which may or may not be the case. But I'd like to see a future where, you know, women create and use awesome technologies too. So
0: It's also true that reporters are kind of sexist and tend on average to quote male researchers something like five times more often than female ones. But, but 97%? That's particularly bad. Maybe just as compelling an explanation that this subject was taboo. So the people who are researching this stuff have to be pretty safe and comfortable. Established academic careers, tenured faculty, in hard sciences. Generally speaking, positions that have gone disproportionately to men.
3: It's a very, very small group. People call it the geoclick.
0: (laughs) But Jane Flagel points out this is still a tiny, tiny field.
3: So the handful of scientists who really want to see this move forward, who I think are well-intentioned. Like, I do believe that people think that this might be a very important tool for managing climate risk. I mean, I think they also are interested in, like, winning scientific prizes. But, um, but I, I do believe that people are well-meaning. Um, but this group of—relatively small group of actors, scientists, have been trying for a long time now to conjure demand for their research— and they've been remarkably unsuccessful. <laughs> and I think it's because at base, the question of whether or not to generate knowledge about this is a like, values question. <laughs> um, so no amount of science is going to resolve it, really, is my view.
0: So why the taboo? Why is it that, at least for the time being... This values question has been answered with a lot of squirming in chairs, with squeamishness, with unwillingness to go there. It's because geoengineering is not actually a solution to climate change. It's a Band-Aid. And as Taylor Swift has said, Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes.
5: I actually usually compare it to people and tell people, it's like opioids. This is Frank Koich,
0: another Harvard geoengineering researcher.
5: Like these very strong painkillers that have a lot of risk associated with them, and what they do is they usually don't actually fix the problem. What it does is it lessens symptoms. And the other thing is that, you know, it's a foreign substance that you put in your body that is gonna have some toxicity, right? So, you know, it can damage your liver, it can do all kinds of things. And the same thing is true that the idea that you can put a million tons of something into the stratosphere and it'll have no side effects, I think, you know, probably is a utopia that does not exist.
0: So you might be in the camp that's saying right now, yeah, but painkillers make the pain go away. So why not use them to get rid of the pain? Even
3: though from a scientific perspective, that makes less than zero sense.
0: In reality, you've got to address the disease and not the symptoms. So spending research dollars and lavishing media attention on a drug that makes the symptoms go away sends the wrong message. Especially if, just like some painkillers, the solution might be worse than the disease.
3: Um, So... So if you did, I mean this is like so if, so if you did geoengineering, if you like let's imagine you do a sulfate aerosol injection and some like whatever you spray stuff in the sky you're blocking the sun. And in the meantime you continue to emit greenhouse gases, um, increasing (laughs) emissions even, Um, you end up in a situation where you have to do more and more and more and more geoengineering to compensate for the heating effects of the greenhouse gases, which is like would be an insane thing to do.
0: To stick with the analogy here, imagine dealing with back pain by just upping the dose of painkillers while still doing the activity that's causing the back pain day after day.
3: And there is the risk that if, so, if, if the system, the socio-technical system that is supplying the geoengineering fails for whatever reason or stops, um, you could have rapid onset of warming. Um, that was a consequence of the continued um, emissions of greenhouse gases.
0: Right. There's a term for this, right? It's like ter-
3: termination. termination shock. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you stop cold turkey, you'll go through withdrawal. And withdrawal from some drugs can actually kill you. So even just talking about this idea, drawing attention to it, means that some folks who haven't taken the time to study the nuances will leap to the wrong conclusions.
2: I think there's something we we, would call the the super-freakonomics flip.
0: This is Peter Irvine, another gentleman from the geoengineering research squad at Harvard. If somehow you have not heard of it, Freakonomics was a book. And its sequel, Super Freakonomics, has a section on geoengineering.
2: And in their second book, they said, oh, climate change is way too expensive to deal with. Oh, but look, here's this solar geoengineering idea. It's really cheap. Problem solved. Done. You know, it's kind of climate change isn't a problem. But now that we've got something cheap, it is it's a problem. We fixed it. That flip is what some people are worried about.
0: The lesson of the Super Freakonomics flip is that folks who are inclined to think climate change is too hard of a problem can quickly pivot to geoengineering. It's a fantasy. We can have our cake and eat it too. No need to lower carbon emissions. We've got shiny particles. But here's the thing. Virtually everyone who's studying this technology believes it should be used only as a stopgap. They think, yeah, painkillers are good for helping you get on with your life while you fix the root cause of your problems, but you've got to fix that root cause. But even though all the researchers studying this know all of these caveats, the problem is that outsiders
2: don't. It does, in fact, look
0: too good. Last year, Gernot Wagner did a study where he estimated the, quote, raw, dumb engineering costs of what it would take to spray reflective particles into the atmosphere day after day, year after year, until we've reduced emissions. Some hapless digital news producer at CNN who had never heard of the idea before noticed the study.
2: Well, anyway, so he picks up this study, um, somehow, no idea how he found it, and um, and basically writes one of these headlines, sort of Harvard scientists discover solution to climate change kind of thing. Um, so I'm just reading here, dimming the sun, the answer to global warming. Yes.
0: So scientists actually- are proposing an ingenious but as yet unproven way to tackle climate change. There are lots of side effects of geoengineering that we aren't sure about. What will it do to the Arctic? What will this mean for the oceans? What will it do to the ozone layer? Gernot Wagner knows that his study doesn't answer any of those questions. He knows that it's more complicated than just calculating the raw, dumb costs. But the public? Not so much. This side effect, which we might call the silver bullet problem, is undeniably real. And it happens all the time. Because the lay public, journalists, people who are understandably freaked out about climate change, love the idea of a quick fix.
2: Um, But yeah, so this CNN report came out, um, if you can call it a report, uh, came out Friday after Thanksgiving. Um, And then uh, by Saturday morning, sort of wee hours of Saturday, um, (laughs) this study was trending with the Kardashians. So, sort of competing with the Kardashians for the number one trending news spot on Twitter for a few hours. So it turns out one of the sisters apparently didn't spend Thanksgiving with the family, and that was you know, that was a problem. Actually, so I, I didn't spend way too much time on this. She was with her basketball boyfriend or something who happens to be playing a game that evening or something. So it wasn't that she wasn't pissed at her sisters. It was because she spent Thanksgiving with her boyfriend, right? Scandal. Um, so a somewhat falsified version of a Kardashian story was competing with a somewhat falsified version of, of the write-up of your study. Exactly, right? So, you know, and then once Questlove and, you know, Chance the Rapper or a parody account for Chance the Rapper and so on tweeting about your environmental research letters paper, right, you know that something has gone horribly wrong. <laughs>
0: So as much as the researchers involved might want this technology to be used in a responsible way, in a way that simply reduces the harm that climate change might cause, the rest of us out here, we're still looking for that silver bullet. And every new social media intern who learns about this thing and thinks they've found that silver bullet is going to tweet about it as such. When a complicated idea is easily misunderstood, it's going to get misunderstood. And once a narrative gets away from you, it can be hard to get back. After a quick break, a story of a narrative gone wild. Welcome back to Outside In. Today we're talking about dimming the sun, an idea that's getting increasingly mainstream.
4: Underneath all the noise of individual headlines and wild claims about how this is all driven by the oil companies or it's our savior or it's complete bullshit, there's you know actually been a pretty steady movement in the core of the climate science community and the climate science advocacy community to uh, take this topic seriously, which doesn't mean we should necessarily do it, but the idea that, in fact, the taboo is wrong.
0: This is David Keith, again, one of the original gangsters of solar geoengineering research. David and a lot of the folks studying this technology think we have to study it, even though they also think it would be preferable if we didn't have to use it
4: it does make sense to study, it makes sense to study it seriously with all the tools we have of climate science to understand how it might be used to reduce climate risks, what its uh, uh, risks itself might be, and how it might be governed in a divided world. And I think there's actually steady growth of
0: agreement that we should do that work. But also, if climate change does become really bad, we might need that painkiller. Here's Josh Horton, also from Harvard.
6: There still is this hope that we can still get things right. I think that, that that's not right. I think that, that that is aspirational. But if you look at the numbers and the trajectories and look at it realistically, uh, we're in pretty bad shape. And we're going to need some some other things to help us get out of this, this mess.
0: If we need the poison pill and we wind up turning to it, it will be worse if we haven't thought about whether it works, what the side effects are, or the best way to govern it. Gernot Wagner puts this another way.
2: If anything, the name of the game now is to stop people, countries, from doing it too soon, too much, stupidly.
0: And it's kind of hard to argue with that. More knowledge is good, right? Who would argue for less knowledge? Well, here's the fear. Uh,
7: My name is Penny Chisholm, and I am an institute professor at MIT. I study microbes in the ocean.
0: Over a decade ago, Penny was involved in some of the foundational research that inspired another geoengineering scheme. This one was called ocean iron fertilization.
7: I study uh, phytoplankton in the oceans that are the base of the food web, and we study a particular group called prochlorococcus, and... One of the things that you need to understand about the oceans is what nutrients limit their growth. And there at the time, there was a hypothesis that iron was an important limiting nutrient before that, we thought it's
0: a little complicated. But the short version of this idea is that if you just add a little bit of iron to certain parts of the ocean, it unlocks the power of this algae and it allows it to grow like crazy.
7: when you add, the limiting nutrient, in this case, was iron, uh, the waters turned green because of these phytoplankton blooms.
0: But after a quick bloom, all of these little plants die and sink to the bottom of the ocean, carrying with them a whole bunch of carbon dioxide. This relationship was observed by a scientist named John Martin.
7: He had this throwaway line, give me a tanker of iron and I'll give you an ice age. And, um, And because of that, when this experiment was done, which was done as a basic research experiment, It was interpreted as a geoengineering experiment, and so it got press coverage in, in that way.
0: That somewhat unwelcome press attention fed on itself.
7: It felt like more and more as I tried to articulate the risks and the downsides and the science that we know that people were not factoring in, it seemed like the more momentum the idea would get.
0: The basic science that Penny was involved in doing was showing that this was a really, really bad idea. When you add iron, the algae does grow, but then there's a domino effect.
7: You're guaranteed certain things in-
0: It dies, it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and it starts to break down. The chemical reactions use up the oxygen that's in the water, and when the oxygen is gone, two things happen. The oceans start producing methane, methane.
7: Which is a stronger greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide.
0: And all the fish that need that oxygen die. To cap it all off, even doing this in all of the world's oceans wouldn't stop global warming. The, the models show it doesn't have
7: much of an impact whatsoever on the trajectory of global warming. So there, there's really nothing that argues that this should even be um, considered, shouldn't even be in the portfolio of geoengineering
6: proposals.
0: In other words, after some very basic modeling, we learned that this particular geoengineering scheme, which is totally different from the spraying stuff in the atmosphere scheme that we've been talking about so far, was a terrible idea. And even though scientists knew that, scientists didn't get to control how it got talked
2: about. I your, your inspiration and your vision. Thank
0: you. This is an event that Penny participated in back in 2012 the Dalai Lama came to Boston and sat in for a presentation at MIT. Ocean iron was still a pretty hot topic back then, and Penny was asked to present to His Holiness Tenzin Gyatso about why it's a terrible idea. The whole scene was pretty stilted. There was a translator there, time was short, but still, after her spiel...
7: Whether we can really
3: solve this problem or not...
0: That's the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama, saying that we should consider it. The allure of these ideas is powerful, and if they can be misunderstood, they will be.
7: I finally sort of stopped talking about it for a while to, to get it off the radar screen.
0: Like reporters would call and you're just like, no response.
7: I would say, yeah. I would say I I I I would send them copies of my articles. Actually, I mean I'd would, I would say this is what I have to say.
0: <laughs> yeah, nothing nothing shuts a day turn reporter up quicker than being sent a scientific paper. They're <laughs> like, what am I gonna do with this? <laughs> so yes. Knowledge for knowledge's sake is good, but you can't control how people see these silver bullet ideas. And never mind people. What about governments? As climate change gets worse, there's going to be pressure on countries to do something about it. And silver bullets are going to be very, very attractive. And while it might be a good idea to think and talk about systems for global governance that would work to keep this technology in check, can you really govern something when you can't even control the narrative about it?
6: Um, so it's how on earth would you get countries to agree? How would you uh, address countries' legitimate demands that if something goes wrong, they aren't uh, left to, out to dry, that they get compensated? There are re- uh, procedures to modify or even halt geoengineering. It's not clear that we could resolve that easily, and so that's politics. It's deciding that in a way that's, in theory at least, inclusive and legitimate and, and wise and thoughtful. That might be too much to ask for, but that would be the goal, I think.
0: When you lay it out in all of those complexities, it, <laughs> it sounds
6: impossible. Uh, it's, well, it, it may be impossible to do it in an ideal way.
0: <sighs> Just to hammer home the challenge here, one last story. So ocean iron fertilization, the geoengineering idea that once we did some modeling seemed like it wouldn't actually work. Here's Penny Chisholm again.
7: I think it was in 2012, um, a person named Russ George who uh, actually fertilized, um, allegedly, well, he claims to have fertilized a 10,000-square-mile region off British Columbia ostensibly to stimulate the salmon fishery there. Um, but also to sell carbon credits.
0: Just to jump in here really quickly, for one, it was 10,000 square kilometers, not miles. But anyway, this is how the scheme was sold, as a way to generate and sell carbon offsets. And he just went ahead and did it. International waters, didn't ask permission, didn't tell any big international governing body he was doing it. He just gave it a whirl and dumped a whole goddamn cargo ship of iron into the freaking ocean.
7: To this day, there is no evidence uh, or data from that experiment. But it does show you what can happen when these ideas are out there. And uh, it's not hard for a single individual uh, to manipulate ecosystems on a large scale when you've figured out what what the triggers are.
0: I don't want to make too much of this story. It would actually probably be pretty hard to do substantial amounts of geoengineering. Like, if... One guy decided he was going to take control of the world's thermostat. World governments could always just sink his ships or shoot down his planes. But what about a superpower? What if things got bad enough for Russia, the U.S., or China to consider it? So in a way, we've become trapped. We've pinned ourselves with the allure of our own possibly flawed idea.
5: Because the, the broader... Context is that scientists are in a position where their jobs depend on arguing for more research.
0: Holly Buck, again, from UCLA.
5: Kind of unfortunately true in a lot of situations where research funding is scarce, it's competitive. Um, they might have to attract money from philanthropists who really be, want to be funding something that's going to be splashy or successful rather than, you know, how, how we sci- we think science is supposed to work. You should be free to um, find some results. And if they're negative, that's science too, right? We need those. We need to know those things. Um, and I, I think the issue is kind of one of science being broken.
3: Look, I am in philanthropy now. Um, and Private this this question about the role of private money in the space um, I think is increasingly relevant you know and it's private money does not always mean like nefarious money but you could have like well meaning philanthropists who get interested in seeing this move forward um, there's also like private universities and you know you just uh, potentially companies I guess and we don't have great democratic mechanisms for overseeing that.
0: In a way, just as we as a society are trapped by the allure of this idea, so too are they as scientists. While some universities may fear to tread in this space, others will dive right in, and wealthy, freaked-out climate benefactors will step up to pay for it. In fact, Harvard's research team will at some point in the very near future launch a weather balloon equipped to spray a small amount of calcium carbonate into the stratosphere, a trial which unlike the hundreds of pounds of particles we emit from commercial airliners every moment, will be conducted deliberately. That geoengineering research program is paid for by tens of millions of private donations, the headlining funder of which is Bill Gates himself, personally. This episode of Outside In was produced by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Justine Paradise, Taylor Quimby, Hannah McCarthy, Nick Capadice, Samantha Searles, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of Office Climate Control Governance. Special thanks this week to Jane Long and Lizzie Burns. If you can't get enough of us, follow us on social media. We're at Outside In Radio on Twitter and Instagram. We have a Facebook group where folks can discuss ideas gleaned from the episodes. Just search for the Outside In group. We have a newsletter. Subscribe at our website, outsideinradio.org. Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.